Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 1 to 20, covering Jesus' healing of this man with a demon. Although I will tell you ahead of time that this is going to be a two-part series. We're going to break this up into two parts. So today we're going to be concentrating on verses 1 to 13. And then next week as we gather, we will look at verses 14 to 20. So please hear with me then the reading of God's Word. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Now, brothers and sisters, there are many problems that plague the church today. I think one of those problems is the the church's desire to be accepted by the world, to be received by the world. 
And so in order to, in order to do that, what they do is usually is they, they have to soften the message. They have to soften the message. But when they do that, all they are really doing is creating a people, a congregation who don't know what it means to take up the cross and to follow Christ. Another problem that plagues the church is that many times ministers forget who the church is composed of, right? who the church is made up of. And so instead of expositing God's Word to the people on the Lord's Day, they use sermons as a, as a tool to attract and to evangelize the lost. But this isn't caring for the sheep at all. In fact, this is a great disregard for the sheep, those whom you have been placed over. And these are just two of the many problems that the church suffers from today that greatly afflict the spiritual well-being of the saints. Right? In, in softening the message and in preparing your message for unbelievers, what you are doing is stinting the growth of the people if they had any growth to begin with. And you're also not equipping them with the weapon of the Word. And when you don't equip them with the weapon of the world, they so easily fall prey to the world. And they get swallowed up by the world and ensnared in the trappings of the world. But these are not the only problems plaguing the Christian church today. And in fact, I submit to you that one of the great tragedies of the contemporary church that has done great harm and will continue to do damage to the church is our denial or the refusal to take seriously the reality of the devil and his evil forces. To take seriously the devil and his evil forces. It seems more common than ever today to deny the existence of hell to deny the existence of Satan, to deny the existence of demons. Right? Satan today is seen as a man who, who wears like a, a red leotard, right? And he has like a pointy tail and a pitchfork. But he's not seen as real. Right? People think that he is more of a, of a character. He's a character played in a movie. Right? Perhaps they don't believe that he is real because the devil and demons are not something that you can visibly see. Right? They're, they're spirits. And so people say, well, Christians just conjured this up. This is a, a superstition that they create in order to keep their people scared and in submission. And yet, it is in the church's denial or in the refusal to take seriously the devil and his evil forces that Satan, in fact, performs his greatest trick of all. He causes us and persuades us and tells us that He does not exist. This is His greatest trick. Right? It's to get the church to believe that there's nothing to worry about. There's nothing going on here. No need to worry. Nothing's attacking you. Nothing's going to harm your spiritual well-being. And He does this because He knows that the worst kind of enemy, the enemy that can inflict the most damage to you, is the one that you do not know is there or the one that you just push aside and treat as unworthy of your attention. And yet, why has the church done this? Why has the church turned their back on the teachings of, of who the devil is and that demonic forces really do exist? 
Is it because we want to be taken seriously by the world and so we think that we have to deny the supernatural in order to be taken seriously? Is it because the church is embarrassed by this teaching? True Christians ought not to be embarrassed by this because Jesus wasn't embarrassed by it. In fact, in the Gospels, Jesus speaks about Satan 25 times. The New Testament authors weren't embarrassed about this. In 19 of the 27 New Testament writings, they speak about Satan. They take them seriously. It's not as if the church has built his doctrine of Satan and his demons upon one obscure text in Scripture, but rather it is founded upon what we find from Genesis all the way to Revelation. This is why, Christian, it's so important to know your enemy. Because as long as we live in this present evil age, they are not going anywhere. They are constant. They are malicious. And they do great damage whether you want to believe so or not. They wage war on our hearts, on our families, on our churches, on our marriages, and on our children. And if Jesus and the New Testament authors took them seriously, don't you think that you and I should as well? Don't you think it's smart to be able to know who your enemy is and to identify him and know his tricks and his devices so that you can guard against him? And yet, brothers and sisters, it's not all doom and gloom. It's not all doom and gloom. For in fact, for those who take God's Word seriously, we do not have to live in fear. Because as believers, we are united by faith to the One who has conquered the devil. And now He who is in us is greater than He who is in the world. And we know that a time is coming when Satan will be cast into the abyss where he will suffer the torments of eternal destruction. And yet Jesus understood that that time was still a ways off. And that there was still going to be struggling going on, a battle going on, as long as we exist on this world. And this is why He prays. In His high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's talking about us. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You keep us from the evil one. And why does He pray this? Why does Jesus ask this of the Father? Because Satan and demons are real. Because they are our primary enemy. He doesn't pray this to the Father and waste the Father's time to protect us because Satan is a myth or a fairy tale or a legend. And so this morning we're going to look at the reality of our enemy. We're going to look at how he still exists and is working this very day as we consider the life of this demon-possessed man. And so we're going to do this under three points this morning. Point one is that demonic forces exist. Demonic forces exist. Point two is the desperate condition of man. The desperate condition of man. And the third is a demonstration of Christ's compassion. The demonstration of Christ's compassion. So demonic forces exist. Desperate condition of man. 
demonstration of Christ's compassion. Now, in Genesis 3, we read, the serpent is there on the scene. And we are told that he is more crafty and cunning than any created creature. And yet we know that God created everything good, very good. And so we can deduce that sometime between God's finished work of creation and here in Genesis 3, that Satan and the angels have fallen. In fact, in Ezekiel 28, verse 17, we're told this of Satan. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. It was pride. It was envy. It was jealousy that caused Satan to want to be as if God. But now that he knows he cannot be, he tries with evil and malicious intent to destroy. This is what we read in uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 3. And even in the opening chapters of Mark, when the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness. Right? What are we told? Satan goes out there so that he might destroy and conquer Jesus. It is here that the, Satan is called the tempter. Right? He's a tempter because he suggests. He tries to incite you to sin. He's an instigator of evil and of wickedness. He's Christ's adversary. Although not an equal adversary. But he's Christ's adversary who wants to destroy and injure. He's the one who Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 as the one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You see from serpent and lion, he is as clever and crafty as a serpent and yet as fierce as a lion. But we learn Satan is not alone. He has forces that help him in the destruction of man. And we see that in our text today. When Jesus asked this man his name in verse 9, what does He tell him? He says, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, Legion is a, a military term. right? A legion was about 6,000 men in the Roman army. Okay? Now that doesn't necessarily mean that this man had 6,000 demons inside of him. But what I think he's trying to get at is that there wasn't one demon that possessed this man, but a multitude of demons that possessed this man. And we see the handiwork of the demons also, not only just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, we're told that now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Matthew Henry points out in his commentary on this passage that the devil or the demons, by divine permission, troubled and terrified Saul. And what were its effects? What were the demons' effects upon Saul? All of a sudden he, gra- he grows angry and jealous and suspicious of David, right? Very discontented. Now, this doesn't mean that every time that people are envious and suspicious and discontented, it doesn't mean that they're demon-possessed, okay? In fact, we only know people who are demon-possessed through special revelation. And so it's not even right for us today to say that's demon possession, right? Because we don't have special revelation telling us that they are demon-possessed. But one thing I think that is clear and that we can point out 
is demonic influence. Demonic influence. And I think we can do this because Scripture clearly tells us how we can identify it. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul also in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12-15, to as he's exposing false teachers before the church in Corinth, says this, And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Right, so we see, we can identify demonic influence and we can point it out and we will know it's there whenever we see God opposed. When we see false doctrines being brought into the church. When people are prevented from understanding. When people attack the church. When people say, you can't eat that or you can't drink that if you want to find favor with God. Or when people tempt others to sin. And yet, brothers and sisters, this is why the enemy is so dangerous. Because he has entered the church. He has entered your homes. And it's not as if you open the door physically and let him in. But many of us have done that figuratively. We've opened the door and allowed Satan to come in. But that's because, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, that the enemy that we're wrestling with is not flesh and blood, but it's rulers. It's authorities. It's cosmic powers. It's over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, until Christians and until churches realize this, we are going to continue to be ensnared by the schemes of the devil. You see, brothers and sisters, we have to understand we are not fighting on our home court. We are fighting on the court of the enemy on the opponent's home court. We need to understand this. And so there's a a different level of preparation that needs to be had. And let me use a a sports analogy to get my point across. If you've ever watched basketball, you know that the role players, those people who don't start the game, who start on the bench, always do really well when they're at home, and they usually do terrible when they're on the opponent's home court. It's because they don't feel comfortable. right? They're uncomfortable on the opponent's court. And instead of being cheered when they're on their home court, now they're being yelled at and cursed out by the opposing crowd. You see, we have to see ourselves like that. right? We are on enemy territory. We are on the opposing team's court. The world is against us. They are not for us. And Satan is coaxing them on. Yet, if it isn't bad enough, He's not only active in the world, getting the world to turn against us, but He's also very active in the church, 
So not only do we have to be aware of what's going on in society, we have to be aware of what's going on within our very own doors. This is why it's so important to, to daily pray. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Right? Praying that daily is so important because it causes us to be reminded of the fact that we are in a daily, constant struggle and battle with Satan. And that we must guard ourselves against it. We must protect ourselves. And that is not only done through prayer, but it is done through the reading of the Word, through coming to church, sitting under the preached Word. It is through attending to the means of grace. It is through watching what we allow before our eyes. We defend ourselves against Satan by watching what it is we allow in our ears. We defend ourselves by watching what we allow to have influence over us and over our children. This is why it is so vitally important to understand that the enemy is real and who the enemy is. Because if you don't know he's real, if you don't believe he's out there, if you don't believe he's working, then you're going to be tossed to and fro. You're going to constantly be falling headlong into sin, feeling the effects of Satan, yet never knowing why. Not understanding that Satan is constantly distracting every single one of us here every single day. That's what's happening when you sit down at home and you quietly try to pray. That's what's happening when you sit down at home and you open your Bible and you want to read, but all of a sudden you're thinking to myself, oh, wait, i got to do something else. And you go away from your Bible and you never come back to read. This is what's going on right now as you all sit here today. And Satan is trying to turn your hearts. Turn off your ears. Turn off your minds so that you will walk out of here being no more sanctified than you were when you came in. That is what his desire is. And these effects of Satan and the demons are exactly what we see in this man in our passage today. And what he felt not only internally and spiritually, but externally and physically. And so this takes us to point two, which is the desperate condition of man. Uh, Look with me, please, at verses uh, 2 through 5 once more. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. What a terrible picture that is, isn't it? What a terrible picture. This is a man who was living amongst the dead. A man who people were so afraid of that they shackled him and chained him and yet they could not keep him bound. He kept breaking them. Not only that, he would howl and scream night and day just Imagine if you lived in an earshot by and you heard this man wailing out at night. He self-mutilated. He cut himself, his body, with stones. And as everyone reads this, and as we all hear this, we pity this man. We, We pity his condition. And yet the reality is, is that the condition of this man is an illustration to us of the human condition. The illustration of this man is an illustration of the human condition. Sure, all sinners aren't demon-possessed. 
But we all, by nature, are ruled by Satan. The misery of this man is the misery of all men. The dreadful condition of this man is the dreadful condition of us all prior to Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See, the problem is, is that sinners always think that we're better off than we are. You say, well, thank you that I'm not like him. Being ignorant to the fact that you are exactly like him. Just as he was shackled and chained and possessed by demons prior to Christ, we were shackled and in bondage to sin and the prince of demons. In fact, Satan would love to do this very thing that he has done to this man to us if he could. And that, in fact, gives us a glimpse, I think, into the vile and cruel nature of Satan. Right? Because he would do this to us even though he knows that he has lost the battle. Yet he would still do this. Luke has a parallel account of this story in Luke chapter 8. Verses 26 to 39. And he adds one additional detail at the end of his account. Right? Mark and Luke both record that the demons cry out, What have you to do with me? Jesus, Son of the God, Son, Son of the Most High God. And then Luke records that, that they then say, I beg you not to torment me. You see, Satan and the demons are well aware that Jesus is the Lord of the demons. Satan and the demons are well aware that he is Lord of the demons. Martin Luther used to have this saying. He said that the devil is God's devil. The devil is God's devil. They know that he is omnipotent and they are not. And so they make an accurate claim, an exalted claim, acknowledging him to be the Son of the God Most High. They know that a time will come when they will be cast into the lake of fire. They just don't want it to be yet. This is why here in Luke records, they they say, I beg you not to torment me. Right? They don't want to be cast into the pit yet. They know that Jesus has the power to do it. But again, this demonstrates to us the heinousness of their workings. Right? They, They know they cannot win. They know that they are destined for wrath. They know that their ends are the lake of fire. And yet, they will do everything in their power so long as they are here to destroy you and I. They want you to doubt God's love for you. They want you to doubt His promises. They want you to doubt and to question His Word. They want to cause you pain and anguish and stress and heartache and grief and sorrow. They want you just for a moment to let down your guard and indulge in those sins that we have been called to put off. They say, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't go so fast. Stop. stop." And yet, it's, it's just not one of them doing this. But it's a whole host of them doing this. And it's not that they do it once a month or once a week, but they are constantly doing this. And they're organized and they're regimented just like an army. This is why Likewise, they are called a legion. Now, nobody raised their hands, but how many people here have watched the movie The Sandlot? 
That was a movie that I enjoyed growing up. But if you have ever seen that movie, it's a mismatched group of kids from all over the neighborhood who were very unorganized and really bad at playing baseball when they first started. And I just bring that up to say that the demonic forces are nothing like that. They are a well-oiled machine. They have a formidable war strategy and they are more powerful than you and I. They don't sleep. They don't take breaks. They don't nap. And so knowing their strength and their determination ought to cause us to want to gird ourselves up in the strength of the Lord. To prepare ourselves, to ready ourselves, to guard ourselves. Which means we can't spiritually fall asleep. Right? We can't self-mutilate. We can't self-harm. And we do that every time we do those things that our Lord tells us are forbidden. Right? We weaken our defenses when we do that. This battle, that, this struggle that we have is very real and it's very hard. This is why Paul likens it to wrestling in Ephesians 6. And it, through what we've read so far, I hope you'd be able to understand why he, he uses that. Right? If you've ever wrestled, if you wrestled with a sibling growing up or you, you wrestled on the, a wrestling team at school, you know what wrestling someone is like. You get sweaty and tired. It's physical, it's hard. You have to keep concentration. It's intense. It's a struggle. And this is why Paul uses wrestling as an analogy. He says that the Christian life, as long as we are living here on earth, is going to be a struggle with Satan and with demonic forces. But the good news is, brothers and sisters, we don't have to do this alone. We don't do this alone. For the believer, Christ is on our side. Martin Luther points this out in uh, the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress. In line 3, he says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. You see, brothers and sisters, we don't fight in our own strength because if we did we would fail we fight in the strength of the Lord and this is because God has compassion upon us he has compassion upon his people and so this moves us then into point number three today which is a demonstration of Christ's compassion we see at the outset that Jesus crosses over the sea to the land of the Gerasenes and immediately as he exits the boat we're told he's confronted by this man who falls down in verse 6 And how does Jesus respond in in verse 8? He says, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And they came out. But they had a very odd request, didn't they? they? They don't want to leave the area. Perhaps it's because they've done such great damage so far, they don't want to be sent somewhere else to have to start all over again. They have a good and strong foothold where they are right now. But we read then in verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000. And they rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now I'll be honest with you. that As soon as I read this, I thought, Oh boy, Peter's not going to like this. Jesus seems to be terribly mean 
to the pigs here. But in fact, as we read this, we should see the great compassion that Jesus has for this man. You know, we, we live in a, in a very odd time right now. Right? We live in a day and age where, where animals, where pets are treated like human beings. Right? Where people actually treat their pets better than they treat their own flesh and blood. It's really strange. It's odd. Now, don't get me wrong. I love pets as much as the next person. But you're not going to see me pushing my dog in a stroller down the street, you know, dressed in sweatpants and a hoodie. It's not going to happen. I'm not sure if any of you have seen this commercial recently. It got a little bit under my skin. Um, it's a, a cat commercial, a cat food commercial. And this woman is sitting on the couch. And a child cries out to her. Uh, and there's a small child, you can you know, tell by the voice, that they have hurt themselves. And the mom sitting there on the couch with the cat says, uh, grab a band-aid. And the child's response is, well, but I'm bleeding. And the mom says, well, then grab two. Right? Showing that she had more care and compassion for the cat than for her own child because she gets up. But she gets up to crack open a fresh can of cat food and, and give it to her cat. Right? But this is the same reaction, right? that same message is being communicated in that commercial is what many people would probably say when they read this text, wouldn't they? They'd say, leave that man alone. Let that one man be possessed by that demon for the sake of those 2,000 pigs. And in fact, millions of people behave and act like this today, don't they? It was recently that a, a football player, many, a few years ago, was jailed for two years for animal cruelty. And he should have been if he did those things that they said. But those same people who wanted to put him in jail and throw away the key forever for being cruel to animals are the same ones today who are championing the slaughter of millions of babies. They're the same ones. If ever the devil and demonic forces were behind something, that movement is it. And don't we know this? And we can point this out for we are told by Jesus in John 8, 44, right? That the, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And so all those who support this movement right, are, are doing their father's bidding. They're promoting his work. You see, instead, brothers and sisters, of weeping over pigs, what we need to be weeping over is the loss of unborn children in the womb who are being killed. Instead of weeping over animals and pigs, we need to be weeping over unconverted souls who are going to go to hell if they do not believe and turn to Christ. In our text today, we see the, the premium that Jesus puts upon human life. That is because we and we alone are made in the image of God. And Christ demonstrates the premium that He puts on life to this man by driving those demons out of him and into the pigs in order to demonstrate to that man that those pigs will never overtake you again. And one thing though we have to understand is although Jesus drove the, the, the demons out of the man, He permitted them to go into the pigs. And it was the demons, and not Jesus, who drove them off the edge. But demons were doing what demons do, right? They destroy. That's who they are by nature. They tried to destroy this man. They were permitted to go into the pigs, and they destroyed the pigs. Right? That's what the devil and the demons do. They destroy. But Jesus restores life. 
He restores life. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, that the reason Christ came was that through death, He might destroy the one who has power over death. And that is Satan. You see, if you deny the reality of Satan and the demons, then you're you're denying the reality for which Christ came, which was to destroy Satan, to destroy his evil forces. So that now by faith in Christ, we can have life. And it is this life that Jesus brought to this man, both physically as well as spiritually. And he comforted his this man's soul, by guaranteeing his protection, by driving out those demons. Jesus displayed to him and to all of us today that he will go to no lawful lengths to save us. There is no lawful lengths he won't go to to save his people. He demonstrates to us that the salvation of one soul is more precious than a beast or any number of beasts. It is also our compassionate Lord who John speaks of in 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, when he says this, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. The word here, touch, means to grasp or to detain. So what John is telling us is that for all of those who are in Christ now, the devil or the evil one will never be able to have dominion over you again. He will never be able to grab hold of your heart and keep it as his own anymore. For those who the Father gave to the Son and who the Son died for, he will raise them all up on the last day. He will do so. We have that promise. And so as we draw to a close this morning, I want to say for all those animal lovers out there, Jesus does care about the animals. He loves his creation. Right? He made the animals. He formed the animals. We read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, that not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Lord. He too has compassion on all of His creation. Right? He feeds them. He makes sure they have a place to, to live and to stay. Right? He sustains their life. But He loves His people in a way that far exceeds any other creature. He loves us so much that He came and died for us that we might live in eternity with Him forever. And so I exhort you all here today to be on guard. Satan is active and he has evil intent to harm you and to harm our Lord. And so what I say to you is to cultivate within yourself a bitter hatred for the wickedness of the evil one. And then know this, that your greatest weapon against Satan is faith. Your greatest weapon against Satan is faith. We resist Satan by faith. We reduce his effectiveness by faith. We win our daily battles against him by faith. And so, brothers and sisters, continue in the faith. Remain in the faith. Continue to surrender and entrust yourself to faith's author and finisher. Please, if you will, bow your heads with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You how Your Word illuminates our minds, gives us understanding, allows us to see the enemy, but You also comfort us with the promise that 
you will never allow Satan to grab hold of us again, that we are safe in the arms of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that we would take seriously the reality of the devil and demons, that we would continually and daily pray against them, and that we would pray for your protection, and that we would do all those things to guard ourselves against his schemes, that we might glorify and honor you in all our days. So, Father, we come before you and we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.